0: We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to another episode of Medicalization, a podcast miniseries that dives into some of the most peculiar and fascinating stories of the history of medicine. Some figures made it their mission to etch their names into history. Others found themselves thrust into it. Either way, their contributions have made medicine what it is today. I'm your host, Wafiq Setholm.
1: And I'm your host, Jessica Setholm.
0: In today's supplementary episode, Jesse and I take a deeper dive into cataracts and Dr. Ridley's story by exploring the history of cataracts, as well as possible advancements in cataract surgery with Dr. Kenneth Hovland, now retired. Dr. Hovland created a showcase at the University of Colorado's Rocky Mountain Lions Eye Institute that details over 150 years of ophthalmological equipment. Jesse and I sat down with him because we wanted to know more about the history of cataracts. Here is our interview. Right. So we are here with Dr. Kenneth Hovland. He's an uh, ophthalmologist uh, who uh, has a vested interest in the history of ophthalmology. And so we would just like to welcome you uh, to our podcast.
1: So you went to medical school at the University of Illinois College of Medicine and then after... In Chicago. In Chicago.
0: And then uh,
2: came out here for internship Mm -hmm. uh, uh, at the University Hospital known as Colorado General Hospital at the time. Okay. That was 62-63. Mm-hmm. And I started a residency here in Denver, same place, University of Colorado. Uh, and that was a three-year ophthalmology residency. And then uh, following that, I spent six months in North Africa uh, doing eye surgery and uh, then went to uh, Boston to the Mass Eye and Ear Uh, It was the Harvard service uh, for the Retina Fellowship. Uh, And then in 1968, came back to practice in Denver. Mm -hmm. And I was on the volunteer, I've been on the volunteer faculty since that time, which is 50 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And so I've been uh, on the clinical uh, faculty there, uh, starting as an instructor and so Mm -hmm. forth. And I think, I can't remember exactly, 20 or more years ago, I became a full clinical professor of, of ophthalmology at the department. Great. Um,
0: I wanted to kind of move into some of the earlier history of cataract surgery. So we talked a little bit in uh, the earlier segment of our podcast about uh, the ancient Egyptians having depictions on tombs, as well as Sushruta being one of the first um, to pioneer couching. Um, what would you identify as the big turning point in cataract surgery?
2: Well, from that very primitive method, as you mentioned, either in Egypt, uh, two, three, four thousand years ago, uh, to the course in India with Sushruta uh, describing uh, how you put, poke a little blunt instrument into the side of the eye and take the lens and dump it down into the vitreous. Uh, It wouldn't come out of the eye, but just be not in the pupil anymore. At that time, people really weren't quite sure what the lens did or where it was. They didn't even know it was the lens that they were moving. They thought it was something flowing down from your brain uh, into the anterior chamber, even. And so uh, it really took about until the 1600s before people really, really knew what the what the lens did and where it exactly was. But in the meantime, with the couching procedure, that was the standard procedure for well over 2,000 years. The most significant change was made then in the mid-1700s by a Frenchman named Jacques Daviel, D-A-V-I-E-L. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of inadvertent. He had uh, tried to couch a lens, and it didn't work, and some of it came into the anterior chamber... So then he decided to take a sharp instrument and open up the anterior chamber with the cornea inferiorly and let all that material come out. So this was not the very first, but the the person who actually did most to describe it in detail and persuade other people to begin doing that procedure. And so it was actually removing the lens. It wasn't the complete lens, but it involved making that incision in the cornea, he actually did it from below down near the cheek. And uh, so he would take a sharp pointed instrument called a keratome, open it up a little bit, and then with curved corneal scissors and other sharp needle-type instruments or knife-type instruments would uh, extend that for almost 180 degrees on the lower uh, half of the eye and then incise the anterior capsule and then uh, let the nucleus come out with a little pressure on the globe so the lens would fall out onto the cheek. <laughs> <laughs> <Warg>. <laughs> pick but, it
1: up, throw it away. <laughs> right.
2: And this was done, of course, without anesthesia and without any gloves on, uh, just simply with your bare hands.
1: <laughs> the before time?
2: I think the instruments were probably tried to be sterilized. I, I haven't read, actually, whether it was in alcohol or just wiped on your coat (laughs) Uh, in any event uh, that was the major breakthrough to what we call extracapsular cataract extraction not just simply dumping it down in the vitreous
0: so with Since the 70s and 80s, there have been a lot of advancements in the field of cataract surgery. Where do you see the future of cataract surgery go? And as a side to that, do you see that there may be a time where uh, medical management of cataracts supersedes surgical management of cataracts?
2: Good question. Uh, If we look at the trajectory in the last 50 years, there's been such remarkable changes it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the next 50 years. Uh, your question is very valid. Is there some way of making a lens? Or t- the lens material, it's, the lens itself is made of basically albumin. And our egg white is albumin. Uh-huh. And when we fry the egg, it gets white, solid white. Right. It's a a protein within our body and other structures. The question, can something taken orally or eye drop type of thing or externally without any surgery, can that modify? I don't think it's going to be able to uncook the egg white. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so I think uh, prevention has always been a possibility, but... And certainly in countries where there's much more light exposure, Sahara and so forth, they do have an increased incidence of cataract from that. Oh, okay. and, and so people are advised to wear sunglasses in general, mm-hmm. and I think that's a uh, an appropriate thing. But I, I don't think we're ever going to be able to prevent uh, cataract from happening, either from diet or eye drops. So, okay. so, but the uh, I don't want to say holy grail, if you will. Would be to have something where you could go in, take the lens out, but leave maybe the capsule and inject something clear in there, like silicone or some material that's solidified, uh, and yet have it be focusable. I mean, uh, when we're born until the time we're 40 or 50 years old, when the lens itself material no longer is pliable. Because when we're in our 20s and 30s, we can focus far and near without even thinking about it. Right. But as people get 45, 50, they need bifocals because their lens won't accommodate. Right. And so there have been attempts to to make the lens material implant that you're putting in the eye to make it somehow change shape, either with uh, the ciliary body muscle... Those haven't been very satisfactory to this point. I see. I guess I'm a little doubtful that a new medical thing, eye drop or pill or diet will make it change. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be surgical to some degree.
1: Plus, I mean, to a certain extent, it's like, are you going to do a lot of research on the most safe, most practical surgery in the United States, right? right? When there's so many other
0: things
1: going on, you know?
0: yeah it's a good point um,
1: so you know we got in touch with you because of your display cases at the yes. Lyons Institute over at c u where you've uh, constructed this history of ophthalmology with memorabilia and uh neat artifacts that you've collected over the years. I'm just wondering where you obtained all the material Well, I got
2: started on that oh thirty or forty years ago with some of the older ophthalmologists in town who knew my interest in history in general Mm -hmm. and they would give me this little artifact
1: here and there here and there (laughs) yeah it adds up
2: (laughs) and then it just added up over the years and then I finally uh, in talking with the uh, uh, different ophthalmologists in town as well as at the university uh, just let it be known that I was gathering uh, this kind of Artifacts from years back, and we have some things that are even 150 years old uh, in the display there. But uh, so, it, and I, it, it's at least 20, maybe 30 different ophthalmologists, mostly, who have donated different pieces of their equipment. Uh, one particular trove of uh, equipment was came from Dr. Joel Goldstein, who uh, happened to buy. The equipment of Dr. Leonard Swigert's after he passed away, and Dr. Leonard Swigert was the father of Jack Swigert, uh, Apollo thirteen. You may recognize the name mm. and the statue out at DIA.
1: Yeah,
2: but in any event, he happened to have uh, ophthalmoscopes, very crude, from eighteen fifties. Oh wow! <laughs> um, uh, so. It became uh, it snowballed, and people gradually uh, contributed a lot of yeah. different different items. And then it took me a, a year or two to kind of set up the arrangement for what I wanted to display. And even since that time, people continue to show and provide me with different mm-hmm. uh, old pieces of equipment.
0: Now I remember in our previous conversations, we spoke about one famous um, patient who suffered from cataracts, and that was Claude Monet. And uh, I just would like you to describe to us uh, how cataract surgery impacted his life and how cataracts in general impacted his life.
2: Yes, as you may know, he was a French Impressionist painter uh, back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He gradually developed cataracts in both eyes, and he had had several friends uh, who had undergone cataract surgery. This was around 1900, 1910. And they had been unsuccessful and ended up with no vision. And so he was quite reluctant to undergo the procedure. Uh, so it was very uh, early days for cataract surgery at the time. And uh, But finally, he got down to where he could only see light and dark in his right eye. And he could see... Uh, perhaps what we would call the big E on the eye chart and his other eye. And his paintings during that period of time, he was almost 80 at the time when these began to affect his paintings. And they became more, uh, less focused. Of course, the French Impressionists are somewhat, uh, one would say, out of focus. But uh, <laughs> the uh, they became more brown and dull yellow colors,
1: because uh, cataracts also reduces contrast sensitivity right? and color sensitivity,
2: it, it, the, which is just, pretty
1: vital for a painter.
2: <laughs> right. So he finally agreed to have a cataract surgery done and in his right eye. And at that time, he had an extracapsular cataract extraction. I don't have the name of the ophthalmologist. I might be able to get it. Uh, but... He was in bed uh, in a dark room for two weeks. Uh, It's unclear whether he had one suture or none at the time. And uh, he was not allowed to get up uh, out of bed at all. And so then the wound healed up, and he could, with refraction, with uh, a special lens, he could actually see more on the chart even down to the 2050 line apparently oh, okay. but this was with I'll give you the numbers because I've seen a picture of his glasses and I know the numbers plus 14 plus wow. another 7 diopters of astigmatism so that's huge and he was quite unhappy with the glasses that he got in fact he correspondence between him and the cataract surgeon are readily available. And he's at one point said to the surgeon, I, I am so unhappy about having undergone this fatal operation. Wow. That was his term.
0: For but, our viewers at home, what kind of glasses, like how wide were the glasses?
1: Well, I mean, a a good example would be Reader's. That's a plus 250. Right. Right. So, so it, it would be... Seven times Five that. Or six or
2: seven times that wow. thick. Yeah. Wow. Okay.
1: So pretty heavy-duty glasses. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And so he would wear them for some of his paintings. And in fact, you can see with the paintings after the procedure, they had much more vivid uh, blue and violet colors in them. And that's common for people who have undergone cataract surgery. They do
0: express that. Wow. What a change.
1: I think that's uh, I think that's all for. Oh yeah. Um. So as a med student, Wafik, um, he had minimal exposure to ophthalmology. This is less. This is more about training. But you right. know, as a med student, Wafik had minimal exposure to ophthalmology. Some students don't have any exposure. I wouldn't have ever. It would have never been on my radar unless I had worked at uh, the Lions Institute. And so, how did you sort of become interested in ophthalmology in a time where it wasn't so commonplace?
2: Well, in medical school, I enjoyed most every rotation. Uh, and then as an intern, uh, I was uh, watching some of the... As a surgical intern, you had to work up the patients that were undergoing surgery. That's for any kind of surgery. And I began to notice uh, one of the residents at the time making large retinal drawings of the retinal detachment patients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, even as a medical student, I you have. I don't. Re, I think it was a man, mandatory rotation on ophthalmology, maybe two or three weeks. And I know different medical schools and different programs have different uh, mandatory
0: rotations. I think it's optional right now, isn't it? And,
1: it yeah. is. Yeah.
0: I I didn't even have the opportunity during my surgery rotation to do ophthalmology. Could you have if you wanted to? I think that uh, during as an elective. my as an elective during my fourth year, I think I would have been able okay. to. There may have been a way, if you're really interested in though to do it during your third year during surgery. But I think you'd have to pull some strings. But it wasn't easy or like readily accessible.
2: Yeah, you know, Well, in medical school, too, I just thought it was really interesting to look inside people's eyes and you can detect so many different type of systemic diseases from that in particular diabetes and hypertension and so forth uh, as well as other infectious things but uh, i thought it was just uh, really interesting and ophthalmology kind of has a nice combination of surgery and medical aspects mm-hmm. uh, nowadays people often uh, sub-specialize many many of the graduating residents in ophthalmology take another year or two or more in retina, glaucoma, cataract, cornea, uh, muscle surgery, uh, orbital surgery, neuro-ophthalmology, all those different subspecialties. And so it has ultimately ended up dividing into more and more uh, small subsets of ophthalmology. But nevertheless, it's still... I. I think the majority. I once read that is either ninety or ninety-five percent of ophthalmologists, uh, if asked uh, uh, twenty or thirty years after their training, if they would have chosen that again, I, I think they say yes. I mm. would choose that again. Yeah. <laughs> so it's basically the combination of medical aspects and uh, surgical aspects
1: and high patient satisfaction. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. All you have, not all you have to do, but you know. A patient, a monocular patient, is still pretty happy. Good vision in one eye.
2: I uh, was for many years involved in the resident uh, screening selection Mm -hmm. of people applying for residency, and I remember a couple of people, one in particular, a lady who had a Master of Public Health. She was from Johns Hopkins, and she was going to go into international uh, medicine, internal medicine and so forth. And she was over in different countries. And she finally concluded that she really did, didn't know that she could personally do that much. And she wanted to do something with one individual at a time. And she came back and wanted ophthalmology. And uh, another fellow had become an uh, emergency room doc. And uh, in fact, he'd been in practice for a couple of years but just seeing patient briefly in the emergency room, taking care of their problem, well that's very satisfying.
1: Mm-hmm. But
2: he really wanted to have a little more longer term care. And yeah. that's that's true for ophthalmology as well. Yeah.
1: Especially for those, you know, longevity diseases, right. macular degeneration, glaucoma. Right. right. I think that is all, all we've got. Thanks so much for speaking with us, Doctor Hovland. Sure. It was a pleasure well, having good you. Good, sir thanks for tuning in to another episode of medicalization please make sure to follow us on itunes and or soundcloud and give us a review you don't have to give us a review but sharing with your friends and writing a review are the best ways to help us out we'll see you next time for another look into the medical history vault with jess
0: and wafiq
1: until then toodaloo
0: We'd like to thank Dr. Hovland for our interview. We had such a great time learning about all this stuff. If you're ever on the University of Colorado's campus, check out his display at the Rocky Mountains Lion Eye Institute on the first floor. It's really captivating.
1: Back to our show.